I want to jump into the text today, okay? Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter number 1, and we'll begin our reading at verse number 36. Luke chapter 1, verse number 36. Is not this a good day? Amen. Come on, it's a good day that the Lord has made, and it may be raining a little bit outside, but thank God, amen, for our privilege to be able to gather on the inside. Amen. Listen, every day that I'm alive, I've learned to appreciate God's goodness. I've learned to give God thanks for the little things in life. You know, when you, know, when you get 60, you know, when you just wake up in the morning, your back don't hurt. You say, thank you, Jesus. Anybody in the house? When, you know, things that I, listen, how many of y'all can appreciate when you're on the floor learning how to get up without pulling something? You say, thank you, Jesus. Ever heard about it? So I've, I've learned to appreciate the small things in life and not get so bent out of shape when, when things don't look to be going the way I think they should go. I've just learned to trust God, to thank him for all of his goodness, and I am going to enjoy life. Do you hear me? You're looking at one preacher who's made up in his mind that he will not allow anything or anybody to cause him to lose his joy. The joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, and the world sure can't take it away. So I'm going to live for Jesus, and I'm going to have joy. I don't believe in some fuddy-duddy, mundane Christianity that has you walking around looking pie-faced all the time. Amen. I think we should have joy. The joy of the Lord should be our strength. Can I get a witness? And in this church, we're going to have joy. We're going to laugh. And if you don't like laughing, having joy, you may be in the wrong church. Can I get a witness? So let's watch this. Okay, let's go to Luke chapter number one. And we'll begin our reading at verse number uh, uh, 26. Are you there with me? Luke chapter number one. And we'll begin our reading at verse number 26. The scripture text says this. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee. Text says, to a virgin named Mary, she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. The text says, Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Text says, confused and disturbed. How many of y'all would have been confused and disturbed if an angel came to you? Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. The text says, don't be afraid, Mary. The angel told her, for you have found favor with God. How many of y'all know it's good to have favor with God? Favor with man is all right, but when you got favor with God, that, that's a whole other stratosphere, okay? Don't be afraid, Mary. That is, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him what? Jesus. Next verse, let's keep reading. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Verse 33, let's read together. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Y'all know what a virgin is? Uh, let me see the hands of y'all know what a virgin is. Okay. A virgin is a, a person, male or female, who is not engaged in sexual intercourse. That's what a virgin is. I know in today's culture, that may seem like an odd word. It may seem like something that, that you think it is an impossibility. But let me tell you something. God has people who are willing to stand and say, for God I live, for God I die. I love you, brother, but until we get the ring on the finger. Come on. All right, all right. Keep moving it. All right. 
And nowadays, it's the brothers having to tell the sister until we get the ring on the finger. The angel replied, okay, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby, so, so, so the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called what? The Son of God. Verse 36, what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will what? All right, look at verse number 38. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you said unto me, said about me come true. And the angel, the KJV, I love the way the KJV reads in verse number 38 which is our subtitle, I'm going to title this because I want you to hear this real carefully. From the King James Version, verse number 38 of the very same text says this. Let me get there right quick. It says, you got your KJV with you? All right. Verse number 38 says what? Come on, let's read it. And Come on, one more time. And Mary said, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to to thy word, and the angel departed from her. I want you to look at the neighbor and say, neighbor, be it unto me. All right, so now we, 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 got, we got to get to, let's see if we can kind of unpack some of this, because customarily we talk about Jesus around Christmas time, uh, and it's always good to talk about Jesus and what he did for us and how God made, amen, a way for us to have a personal relationship with him. God designed a man, a, a, a process for man to have an intimate, personal relationship with the triune God, the God who created the heavens and earth. God made it so that you and I could commune with him. I don't know about you, but that is, that's very important to me to know that God thought enough about a little old fellow like myself to say, I'm going to make a way for him to connect with me. I love man, my creation so much that I, I know that it requires something for them to come into my presence. And I am going to give them the privilege of communing with me. Communing with God is different than having good religion. Yeah, communing with God is more than going to church. Communing with God is more than being a good Baptist, a Methodist, Episcopalian. As a matter of fact, I told you before, I don't focus on denominationalism because denominationalism sometimes divides. And it's all about Jesus himself. When you ask me who I am, I'm going to say I'm a Christian. I'm a born again believer. First and foremost. Are y'all with me today? That takes priority over everything else. I am part of God's family. So we look at this text here again. Watch this. Mary said, again, think about this for a second. The angel came to Mary and began the things with her. And she was confused because she knew when she understood that she hadn't been with a man. And having not been with a man, she knew that the, 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 the normal way of the birth of a baby into the earth realm involves sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. I know we have in vitro fertilization, but the long and short of it is this, guys and girls. Man can come up with all kinds of technology, but ultimately it's going to require the seed of a man to connect with the egg of a woman. You can do it in the laboratory. You can do it wherever you want to do it. But, but only that's going to produce life. And here's the other part about it. Only a woman can birth a child into the earth realm. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but biologically you can't get around that argument. 
no medical scientist, no medical doctor worth his salt will tell you that it's natural for a man to produce birth. It doesn't happen, right? So here we get into that text, and the angel comes to Mary and begin to share some things with her. But, but I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to think a little bit deeper about what's happening here in the text, because there's a, there's a lot of things going on beneath the surface. There's a story behind the story. Can I get a witness? How many of you have been talking to somebody about some issue, and you say, there's got to be more to this story than what's being told here, right? Right? So the text says here, uh, when we get back, he says, uh, in Verse number 26, that very same chapter. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the first part of the outline that says God is not a respect of persons or places. That's important for us to understand because Nazareth, in the broad scope of things, was not thought very highly of. Are y'all with me today? As a matter of fact, Nathaniel, after he was uh, called to be one of the disciples of, of Jesus, said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Some of y'all may be from some places where people say, can any good thing come out of the bottoms? Some of y'all may be from some places where they say, can any good things come out of jack quarters? All your old heads know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all may be saying, can any good thing come out of this place or wherever? And, and because we'll, we will, uh, in, our, in our narrow pea brain way of thinking about life, we will actually limit people based off of where they're from. And in our text today, we see the angel Gabriel being sent to an obscure village, Nazareth of Galilee, to deliver an all-important message about the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Galilee bordered Gentile or heathen nations, and therefore, it was sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles. All right? Nazareth was a despised city considered inferior by the rest of Israel. The city and its citizens was this object of deep prejudice by Jews and Romans alike. Amen? But again, God is no respecter of persons or places. Aren't you glad about that? Amen? He sends a message to Nazareth as readily as he does to Jerusalem. He sends it to a believer in Nazareth, Mary, as quickly as he does to a believer in Jerusalem, Zacharias. And we'll see that a little bit later on. He's not a respecter of persons. Go to Acts 10 chapter 1 right quick. I want to move swiftly this morning, and I need y'all to go with me, okay? So God is not a respecter of person or places. Why is that important for us to know, Pastor? Well, because God wants to do some things through the body of Christ, and he wants to do some things to, through us as individual Christians that sometimes we may not think we are worthy for God to use us that way. And in the in, in totality, I guess you, you're right about it. None of us, any of ourselves, are worthy to be used by God. But he chose us in spite of us. Amen. He chose us, amen, in, in spite of the fact that we're not really worthy of him being in, even in our presence. But he said, I want you in my presence anyhow. I thank God for that, amen. I thank God that he chose us in spite of us, amen. There's a popular song that, 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 that talks about that he chose me in spite of me. And then when you look back over your life, I think right now, if you look back over your life today and, 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 and you think about all the things that you've been through, all of the bad decisions and ungodly decisions that you made, and yet you're still here, you, I think all of us can say, God, I thank you for choosing me in spite of me. Come on, believers. I need y'all to look at me right now. When you look back over your life, you think about what God has brought you through, the things he's covered in your life that he didn't allow to get exposed, and he kept you. 
You ought to say thank you. You ought to say, God, thank you for choosing me in spite of me. Thank you, God, for using me when I didn't deserve to be used, but you chose, amen, chose me to use me to advance your kingdom principles. So we're looking at Acts the 10 chapter. Let's get down to verse number 34, and I'm going to back up just a little bit, okay? Acts chapter 10, and look at verse number 34. Are you there with me? The text says what? Then Peter, what? Replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. The King James says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. In other words, this came, guys, on the hill. Can we back up just a little bit? Because I believe you have to give context to the scripture in order for us to get understanding from the scripture. How many of y'all ever tried to read something but didn't have context? Context tells you, amen, the, the, the gist of the story, and it gets us to the point where we can properly understand God's will for our life. Back up with me, if you will, to uh, Acts, the 10th chapter, uh, and we'll take a look at verse number, well, uh, let's go to verse number one. Come on. I got to move. Are y'all ready to read the scripture today? Yes. All right. Verse number one. In, it says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God with always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine arms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Now watch this, guys. What we're going to get into, we're going to begin to see here is that God, God, the gospel message, as we've been talking about for, for the longest, the gospel message has always been and has been designed to bring people together, not divide them. Are y'all with me today? The gospel message, amen, is about the blood of Jesus breaking down the middle wall of partition that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And he, and he, and the blood unites us rather than separates us. Are y'all track, tracking today? The blood unites us rather than separating us. Keep on reading. On the morrow, as they went on the journey and drew nine to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry. How many of y'all hungry right now? Hold your mute, okay? I won't be very long. <laughs> And became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they were made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, what? Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, you got to understand something. The Jewish nation, God's chosen people, had some dietary restrictions at one point. There were certain things that were considered to be unclean. There were certain things that they, they were not allowed to eat. 
But I'm here to tell you, when Jesus died on the cross, and here, this is post-Christ here, post-cross here, Jesus had already died and resurrected and went back up into heaven to be seated on the right hand of the Father. So now, when Jesus died, he wiped that stuff out. Such that I could eat whatever I want to eat and whatever God made, he says, don't call it unclean. Because what God was doing is trying to teach his people, hey, listen, I'm going to bring you to a point to where my plan, which I had before the foundation of the world, has been put into place and I have activated it. I, I birthed my son into the earth realm and he died a sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary so that you and I could come together in unity on the blood of Christ Jesus. So watch, watch. So, so, so Peter, there were certain things that Peter thought were, 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 uh, were unclean or he could not eat. Text says, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, what God hath cleansed, that call thou not common. This was done three times. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now, while Peter doubted himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. Now, I, I, I want to hurry this up because I don't want to lose my time. So they come under the instructions of the, God's angelic messenger. You're going to see here in a little bit that God oftentimes would use angelic messengers uh, people who appeared to be men, but they were actually angelic beings. The Bible tells us, be careful to entertain strangers because by, thereby entertaining them, you sometimes entertain angels without even knowing that you just met an angel. Y'all got that? So angels appeared in the form of men, and we'll see this in our text as we keep moving forward. So we see here the angel that came and the message that came. And so now Peter is told, amen, what God has called clean, don't you call unclean. Go with me to Romans, the 14th chapter right quick. Because a lot of us listen to social media theologians. Y'all, listen, be smart enough not to believe everything you read. Look for credible sources and don't just take something that you saw on Facebook and run with it and start gossiping and saying stuff that, that you don't even know what you're talking about. Romans, the 14th chapter. And I see this all the time with people talking about certain dietary restrictions. Let's go to the, to the New Living Translation on this one, Brother J. Romans chapter 14. And we'll start out reading in verse number one. God's not a respecter of persons or places. And I'm going to say he's not a respecter of certain dietary restrictions either. Right? Can I talk to it? Can I teach this morning? I'm getting to my text. But watch this. Romans 14 and 1 says what? Except other believers who are what? Who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now, I got to give context to this because sometimes, some, some of y'all are going to read this and say, well, we, we, that, that, that's it right there, Pastor. Uh, whatever somebody thinks is right for them, it's right for them. He's talking about Christians who were new to the faith, and they still had certain convictions about things that they had grew up all their life being told you can't eat this because it's wrong. Are you with me? The Bible calls them weak in the faith. All of y'all who are sitting here, and, and, you ha- and, and it may be your conviction, but if, you're, if, you're, if it's your conviction that you can't eat pork meat, guess what? You're weak in the faith. Are you with me? You're weak in the faith. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I ate some pork meat 
this this past week, Marrera and I drove about 55 minutes to Magnolia, Arkansas, to go to a farm to where some of the most beautiful collard greens, the, the biggest bunches that I've ever seen compared to what you can buy in Brookshire's and Super One or wherever else, they were the most beautiful collard greens. <laughs> Can I get somebody out there who still like to eat good? Who still eat country? How many, how many of y'all grew up eating collard greens? Yeah, little smothered chicken and candy yams. Hold my mute. Those, 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 beautiful, those beautiful collard greens. But while we were up there getting those beautiful collard greens at a very reasonable price, if you, if you want to know where to get them, I'll hook you up. See me at the church. But we also stopped by a place in Magnolia called Backyard Barbecue while we were up there. Since we, since we were in the place, I mean, we were close by. Come on, Rafe, I thought it was just my, my duty to grab some ribs. And we grabbed those ribs and we bought those ribs back. As a matter of fact, we started eating those ribs before we actually got back. And we still got some at the house, right? So, so, so for those of y'all who think eating pork meat is wrong, stay with the scripture here. Watch the text. Can we keep reading? God's not a respected person, places, or your dietary restriction. Watch this. Next verse. Let's read. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. Now watch this. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has what? Accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, everybody say in the same way. Some think one day is more holy than another day. While others think every day is alike. You got some folks say, well, the Sabbath is a Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath was not given to the church, by the way. And if you decide to, 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 to go to church on a Saturday, cool. But don't come condemning me because we meet on Sunday. The text says, in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is what? Is what? Is acceptable. Verse number Six says what? Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to look and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die to ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to whom? Christ died and rose again for this very purpose to be to be Lord both of the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we were all standing for the judgment of God. For Scripture says, "As sure as I live," says the Lord, "Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiance to God." Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So stop. Let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to what? Now look at verse number 14. I read all that to get to this point. Again, the context is you had people who were new to the faith, 
people who had come out of Judaism where they had dietary restrictions and now they were walking with Christ. But they still were holding on to some of their Jewish customs. And then you had these Gentile believers who didn't have any restrictions. They came to the church also and there was some argument about whether or not you could eat certain things or not. So Paul was trying to get them straight on those things. These were not things that were tantamount to this Christian faith. This was not whether or not you believe in Jesus or not. I can't, I can't walk with you when you say there is several ways to God. When Jesus says in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Either he was telling the truth or he was lying. So either he, he didn't say I am a way, I am a truth. He says I am the way, I am and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Verse 14, watch this, and we've got to finish up. And I know and I'm convinced on the thoughts of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is what? Did y'all just hear that? Let's read it again. I need y'all to read it out loud with me. This is a participatory sermon and you learn by reading aloud and faith comes when we hear the word of God being pushed into our, in our, in our eye gaze. I see my West Point student in the house. Good to see you. Amen. Watch this. Watch this. Now, and I'm convinced on the Lord, authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person, what? It is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom God Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. Now, verse 17, 17 he said, heart of the matter. Are y'all there? Let's read it. For the kingdom of God it's not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy. What? In the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. You arguing about what people eat, but you're living like hell. Can I put it that way? You're arguing about dietary restrictions. You're arguing about certain days that you meet on and certain customs, but your life is raggedy. It's not about food and drink, but it's, 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 it's joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. It's living a life of purity before our God. So God's not a respect of person places. And I would also say he's not a respect of what food you eat. But if my eating causes a weaker brother to stumble, if me having those baby back ribs in my house and I invite you over causes you angst and heartache, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hide them when you come over. I'm not going to put them out before you and cause your conscience to be wounded. That's what a mature believer does. Are y'all with me? So, so people are judging one another about these things, and most people who are talking about it have no theological construct, don't understand dispensation, how God dealt with Israel a certain way at a certain time, and now he's dealing with the church. And so now they, they're taking an Old Testament concept from Leviticus and some of the other things and trying to map it to the day, and they're ignorant of the things of God. I don't mean that in a negative way, but ignorant means just to not know. 
you pluck the scripture out of context, not understanding dispensational uh, demarcation between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And saying stuff that you have no clue what you're talking about. Listen, he says, whatever you want to eat, eat it. But if my eating causes you to stumble and fall, I'm going to be mature enough to say, I'm not going to do that right now. There may be certain things you got liberty to do, but your liberty will cause somebody else who's weaker in the faith to stumble and fall. And so a mature believer say, well, I know where that person stands on this. So even though I got liberty to do it, I'm not going to do it. Because if I do it, it's going to mess somebody up. Are y'all with me? All right, so let's get back. Come on, come, get back. Go with me, if you will, uh, to, so God is no respecter of persons or places. He says the message to Nazareth, the place that was despised, as well as a message to Jerusalem, the place that was revered. You see, a place, whether it's a city or a nation, is not judged by its institutions, natural resources, or political advantages, but by the righteous people who live there. Just by being in America don't make us blessed. Can I say this? A nation, a nation is blessed because of the people that are in the nation. If the people in the nations are unrighteous, the nation becomes unrighteous. Are y'all with me? Now, this is very important. I, I wasn't going to read this, but, but, but I think I'm going to do it, Brother Jay, right here. Right because here. here's what I, I need us to understand as, as a body of believers. Lord Jesus, my time. But watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. There was an article I read, and, and it really hits to the heart of this thing, and, and, and I, I got to keep moving. It's, 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 it's called fighting for relationships. Everybody say fighting for relationships. How many know you got to fight to have God on relationships in the church? And it, it's titled Fighting for Relationships, and, and the subtitle is Striving for Unity in Politically Divisive Times. And this, this article was written to believers. Everybody say believers. believers. Say not church folk, not church. but believers. believers. People who say they love Jesus. Watch this. Listen to this real carefully. Shortly before his recent unexpected passing, my friend, Christian Standard Editor Mike Mack, via email, he says, how can we love one another in a culture where there is so much sharp disagreement? He said, would you write something on the challenge of fighting for relationships? He says, before his, before his untimely death, the burden on Mike's heart and likely many of our hearts was to see Christ's followers navigate the nasty cultural wars, the lack of civility, and the political polarization to live out faith in God-honoring ways. How do we disagree without hating, he asked. He says, indeed, some people now contend we are more divided than we've been since the Civil War to the point of dysfunction. Right and left are no longer two opposing sides that keep each other in balance. John Mark Comer says they are two rival religions locked in holy war with zealots fighting it out online and increasingly in the streets. The greater tragedy which prompted Mike to commission this article is that this same ugly division has entered the church. Rival ideologies have gathered their tribes and gained allegiance, pitting us against one another. People are often willing to do whatever it takes to elevate their own group and undermine their rivals even if it means being nasty or hurting someone. 
We know it's to be true because we lived through 2020 when when factions fought tooth and nail over mass mandates and lockdown measures and, and the efficacy of vaccines and not only who should be the next president, but whether anyone who disagreed with your point of view could possibly be a real Christian. I heard a guy say this and he read it. He said, if you're not a Republican, you're not a Christian. How, how dare you? How dare you, amen, question someone's faith based off of what political party they belong to? Are y'all listening to me? And it's breaking, by the way, I'm neither one. I'm independent, if you want to know. You didn't ask me, but I just told you. And I vote for the best person. I voted for, and I voted for Democrats. I'm voting for the, the person who I feel led is the best person for the job. That's me. Can I get a witness? I'm not a, I'm not a robot. Can I keep reading? And it's breaking the heart of the Lord. Jesus prayed we would be united as one, protected from the schemes of the evil one, which he warned would appear in the form of disunity. John 17, chapter. Y'all remember that, right? As we approach another election year, we must do more than brace ourselves. He says, instead, we must embrace four key concepts, each a critical aspect of Jesus' kingdom. Watch this. Number one is love. We got to learn to disagree politically and still love unconditionally. Everybody said we got to learn to disagree politically and still love unconditionally. When asked, listen, when asked to boil down the entirety of scripture, Jesus told us to love God and love people. Paul said love is the fulfillment of the law. That's Romans 13 and 10. And yet Christians fight and fling dirt at each other over issues of race, immigration, politics, and more. It's as if we believe being passionate about our position on an issue justifies spiritually immature behavior. But if we don't have love, we are nothing but an obnoxious, blaring alarm. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Even if you think you're right without love, as a Christian song from more than a decade said ago, you ain't nothing. Tribalism erects barriers and divides us. The gospel crashes those barriers and draws us together in Christ. If you listen to this, I like this. If your gospel isn't strong enough to crash through political walls, it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Jesus didn't say ridicule your enemies. He didn't teach put up with your enemies. Just try to ignore them. No, Jesus commanded, love your enemies. Tolerance is not a high enough standard for Jesus and his people. It's time to take Jesus' teaching more seriously and embrace love. Our faith, hear this, our faith will not be proven by how deeply we love our friends, but how deeply we love our enemies. The people who tick you off, the ones you can't stand, that's going to prove where your love meter is. Amen. Imagine if the next election cycle, Christians in America were primarily known for the very thing Jesus said we ought to be known for. Not our politics, but our love. So love is the first thing. The second one is what? Unity. Why is this unity? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Paul reminded us in Ephesians that we are one body and one spirit with one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And he stressed that it will take some hard work to keep that unity. 
Strive for it. It's as if he was saying Christ has made you one. Now act like it. Christ has made you one, church, believers. Now what? Act like it. Look at them say, act like it. Jesus' people are not held together by political affiliation, and we must never let it drive us apart. The picture of God's people joined around the throne one day reveals a wonderfully diverse collection from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's in Revelation 79. There is unity despite the diversity because Jesus is at the center. Anytime you have disruption in the body of Christ, somebody's left Jesus out. Jesus is, amen, a unifier when you're following him totally and completely. I may not agree with you, but I can still love you. Can I get a witness? So unity. Many Christians choose one side and ignore or demonize the other side. Instead of uniting around Jesus and presenting a competitive, compelling alternative way to live in the world, we have adapted to the categories and parties handed to us. So unity. There's a whole lot more. I said, Lordship is the next thing. Lordship. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? That's what Jesus said. When politics and faith become entangled during the crusades, the result was an ugly blemish on the name of Christ. How easy it is for us to, 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 to give God only a part rather than the whole of us. For the Christian, our primary pledge of allegiance happened at our baptism. This is what unites us. It is the basis and only hope for our unity. What would happen if our primary identity was Christian? And our only master was Jesus. So lordship. And lastly, he talked about mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. If you want people to leave your church, be turned off by your preaching and become disillusioned with Christianity in general, make politics and ideology more important than theology. There is an exodus from American congregations across our land. Much of it isn't because people are less interested in faith. It's that they are less interested in politically induced slants and rants. We live in what can be labeled a post-Christian culture. We are on a mission field. People who show up at church in this climate aren't looking for your political views or ideological bent. They're looking for God. And we're going to preach God here. We're going to preach Jesus in this place. We're going to live it out in our individual lives. And I didn't read you the whole thing, but I, I would challenge you to go and read the, that that. That article by Ben, uh, it's a pastor named Ben Cacciaris. And, and he wrote that, uh, and I'll, I'll get them and send it out to you, but it's something that we need to all be focused on, the unity of the, of the body of Christ. Amen. Jesus should unite us rather than divide us. Can I get a witness? Now let's get back to our text in my, in my small amount of time that's remaining. So God sent a word. My, my wife is shaking her head and said, I knew you weren't going to get finished today. <laughs> God sent a word to a virgin who lived in Nazareth, a place that was not thought very highly of. Now, why would God do that? You would think that God would go to the most pristine places of, of societal, societal hierarchy so that, so, that, so that people could see, amen, the move of God in powerful places. But that's not what he does. Why doesn't he do that? Go to 1 Corinthians the first chapter with me. First Corinthians chapter number one. This is one I love. First Corinthians one, eighteen through thirty-one. 
of Nazareth. He was from a place that was not thought very highly of. But the text says this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Are you there with me? Verse number 18. It says, the message of the cross is what? Foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Now think about that just for a second. Somewhere along the line, if you are a born-again believer, your life was changed by someone speaking a word to you. Your life was changed by someone sharing with you the gospel message. God chose, the KJV says, the foolishness of preaching to redeem mankind. Who would have ever thought that, that you would be sitting here in this place today because someone preached the message to you. Oh, it may not have been from the pulpit. It may have been uh, at, at work. It may have been in your backyard. It may have been at the Christmas party you went to. And they pull you aside and begin to share with you the hope that is within them. And through that preaching, the message transformed your life. God chose the foolishness of preaching, amen, to get men saved. So the, the, the text says in verse number 22, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentile says nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is what? The power of God and what? And the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God. Watch this. This foolish plan of God. Everybody say foolish plan. It didn't make sense to the theologians. It didn't make to the deep thinkers of society. But God chose a plan that confounded the enemy. Watch this. The foolish, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Watch this. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth and saying, y'all, y'all want it. When we look at y'all, y'all didn't have it going on like everybody says. Sometimes we think God has to use people who have millions of dollars. Sometimes we think God can only use those who've been educated at the best schools. My, when I read my Bible, it shares with me just like this, that God would choose the minuscule, mundane, on the backside of the desert folk to get his will done. And there's a reason why he does it. Can we keep reading and find out? Are you there with me? Remember, dear brothers and sisters, verse 26, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. 
Nazareth, things counted as nothing at all, Nazareth, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in his presence. The KJV said he did it because so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Because we are, you know, as human beings, we're kind of that way. We start to think it's all us. It's my degree that got me this. It was my money that brought me this house. Let me tell you something, baby. Your money may have bought you that house, but your money can go away and that house can go away also. You better thank God for everything that you have. Amen. Everything that I have, my my movement, my being, I give credit to him. It's not my intellect. It's not my wisdom, but God did it for me. Can I get a witness up in heaven? God did it for me. So God will choose those things that don't seem to be very important because he knows we some prideful folks. And we'll start thinking it's all about us. Y'all don't saw people get a new car that they drive a little different. They look a little smug. Don't come on now. Now you're in your new house and you start. You don't want certain people over your house. How many kids they got? Well, we're going to screw Now, you're the one who said, Lord, while you were trying to get the house, here, here is you. Why? Lord, I come before you need bitten and body bound. Thanking you, Lord, that you're going to allow me to purchase this house. And Lord, I will use it for ministry. You lied just then. I will use it to host small groups. I will allow pastor to use my home to, 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 to babysit the, 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 the babies and the youth while their mothers are out in a small group meeting. They can, God, just bless me with it. And the Lord blesses you with it. And we ask you to use it. And you say, you know, pastor, you know, I just, you know, I just, I, you know, there's a liability involved. Liability involved. Now you want to get legalese on me. It was liability involved when you had all the, the movers and sakers in society over your house too. Their kids were there. Guys, we, we, can, we, we have to watch that sin of pride. God will take that which is money. God will take a small church I ain't going to say small church anymore. God will take a church in big, because you not, do you not know that the average attendance of churches in America is 50 people or less on a Sunday? So I can't call a small church any longer. We're a 500 plus member church, but God will take a, a church that was 40 in attendance on a Sunday and make it blow up. He'll, he'll come to Benton, Louisiana and shame what's happening in New York City. So that no flesh can glory in his presence. God will take somebody on the backside of the desert. Somebody who most people didn't think very much of and raise them up to give him glory. Because he knows that person will be appreciative of what the Lord has done. And I personally believe that God is doing a supernatural manifestation of the unification of the body of Christ in this church. So that people, amen, will look and see. People need to see something. You can talk about unity all day long, but until you demonstrate it, you just talking loud, ain't saying nothing. God 
wants to use us to display his manifold wisdom. He wants to use the church to show that when you come together under the blood of Jesus, the one who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, the one who tabernacled down here on this earth for 33 some odd years, went to the cross of Calvary, shed his blood on Golgotha's hill, died, was resurrected the first day of the week, and with all power in heaven and earth in his hand, he'll use that sacrificial death to transform men's lives. It may not make sense, and oftentimes faith does not, but faith works. Everybody say faith works. Now listen, I got to close. But look, listen to this. In your outline, I, I, I shared several things, which is point number two was throughout the Bible, people responded differently to God's special message. And we'll look at these on next week. But, you, but, but think about this for a second. It was not such a strange thing when you look at Scripture to see angels delivering God's message. They were messengers. They were, they, 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 they were serving God. And it wasn't a strange thing for miraculous births to take place in the scripture. And we'll see it here. People reacted differently. But I thank God that Mary said, after getting an explanation of what the angel was talking about, she said, be it unto me, according to your word. When she said that call, be it unto me, according to your word, her faith was activated. And because her faith was activated, we have a Savior who was born in a manger in Bethlehem. We have a Savior, amen, who grew up with all wisdom and knowledge. We have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins because she said, be it unto me. Now, we got to start looking around our lives and looking into the Holy Scriptures and seeing what God says about us, and instead of talking doubt and unbelief and saying what other folks say, you got to start saying, be it unto me. Be it unto me according to thy word. Mary said it. She submitted to the will of God, and she birthed our Savior. We'll, we'll unpack some more of it next week. But I want you to know this. God loves you. And God desires a personal, living, breathing relationship with every last one of us in here. He loves us, and he wants the very best for us. Be it unto me, according to his word. Every head, body, back, close. Father, we thank you.